With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host along with Ronaldo Brutico for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo, as I think most of you know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a wealth advisor and estate planning consultant. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we will include questions and comments from you, our audience. Uh, as we have noted, we already have several questions in the queue, which we've received both by email and by phone. And if you'd like to place a question, please dial in to us at our phone number, which is area code 347-989-8946, and hit the number one key. I think incorrectly last time I mentioned hit the pound key. It's hit the number one key. Um, Again, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete actionable, actionable ideas. Today we will discuss the aftermath of the elections, how you should protect yourself economically in the political stalemate that will follow the elections, and what signs you should be watching for to adequately protect your resources. During the lightning round, we will do a series of quick comments and comments commentaries on major asset classes such as bonds, dollar, energy, real estate. And today's particular emphasis, again, will be on gold and what's happening with that. And before I introduce Ronaldo, I must say that this is definitely one of those times when the Chinese quote, may you live in interesting times, certainly does apply. Uh, we have some unusual circumstances following the elections. And with that, I'm going to introduce Ronaldo and let him take over. Ronaldo, you're on. Thanks, Howard. Much appreciation for being here again with us this week, this month. Uh, I just I wanted to acknowledge uh, those people who are getting this program by downloading. Uh, we found out that last week uh, almost 350 people downloaded the show after it was over, which I'm delighted about. It means that people find it worthwhile to go find it on the web and and maybe even share it with your friends, and I, I urge you to do that. Uh, the point of this show every month is to give you the best that we can uh, with no economic benefit to us one way or the other, so we're the ultimate financial umpire. We just call them like we see them. And the more this gets shared, hopefully the more um, impact it will have as all of us start to rearrange our lives around the economic forces and the political and social forces that are becoming ever more powerful and more important in our lives. So uh, number one, I would characterize, I want to I share something uh, I've mentioned to people about the following election. I think it's significant that about four or five months ago, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which although it claims uh, hundreds of thousands, 300,000 members or something silly. There's really 45 companies that put up virtually all the money there, the overwhelming amount of money. And so you got 45 major industrial corporations in the health insurance sector, military contracting, uh, fossil fuels. There's a, there's, there's a handful of companies that are just so enormous. They, they have this huge impact on the Chamber of Commerce. 
And the Chamber of Commerce decided it was going to prove once and for all you know, who was in charge of America. And so they staked a huge bet on the current election that they could flood the, 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 the off-year election with so much money that they could literally take control of the House and possibly the Senate. And that's almost what happened. So I would say that November 3, 2010, was the day that the U.S. Chamber of Commerce proved who really works for who. And I think that's unfortunate, but apparently the politicians in Washington now know that they do, in fact, work for business interests. Um, we, for the many, many years in the academy, have always felt that business had that power even when it chose to try and hide it. So what I like about November 3, 2010, is now it's boldly obvious. You see, so this thing we say in, in the academy about being responsible for the whole, business, because it is so powerful, really has no choice now but to be fully responsible for the whole. And that the Chamber of Commerce has chosen to so graphically demonstrate the power of commerce over politics, which we think has been there for many, many years, obviously. But that graphic depiction now brings a whole new light to the role of business in society. So a conscious commentary on business and society, which is what this program is about, really strikes me as now more extremely important than ever, more vital than ever. Every one of us needs to be financially literate for our own protection, if nothing else. Every one of us needs to be aware politically as to what is actually happening in the societies within which we live. And each one of us needs to know how we can do something for ourselves, our children, next generation, our grandchildren, whatever, as we move through what Howard characterized a moment ago as interesting times. And he did so with tongue-in-cheek because, as you know, that's an old Chinese curse. The Chinese curse goes as follows, may you live in interesting times. Well, the reason it's a curse is because the volatility of what we're now going to deal with is enormous. I'll just start with uh, the observation I made before the election, that in the event that the House went to the Republicans, as we saw that it was tending to, we, meaning the Academy, would start looking at the necessity to divest ourselves of all equity investments in the U.S. stock market. Um, we are starting a process this, with this show uh, to do precisely that, to begin the process of looking at, once a month instead of once a quarter, what the global and macro, global macroeconomic situation is and what the microeconomic situation is for the U.S. economy, and what that portends for each of us. So here are a few headlines, and then let's go into a conversation about it here, uh, Howard. Number one, although we've gone from uh, a 2.7 to 1.7% inflation as recently as the first quarter of the second quarter of this year, it appears to me that inflation is going to start picking up again. You'll see it reflected in the price of oil. Uh, look for 85 to 90 to be the new bandwidth on that, and I think it'll go above that. Look for um, increases in food, which you've been seeing for the last year or so, could increase dramatically in the future because of um, climate change, making it less desirable, less possible to grow crops in many regions this year. There were crop, massive crop failures in Russia. Uh, last year, massive crop failures in Australia for a number of years. So you're, you're going to have more pressure on the ability of the, um, of, the, of the nations of the world who produce surplus uh, grains and foodstuffs pressure to increase at that level will be great because of climate change, meaning less likely to have annual bumper crops. Number two, you'll have an increased consumption of protein. It takes five or six times as much grain to grow a pound of protein as the grain weighs itself. So as China and India and other parts of Southeast Asia increase their protein consumption, puts more pressure on the supply of grains and foodstuffs. 
Uh, Bernardo, thirdly, let me just put that in, in a little bit more graphic terms for people, that what's happening in China and, and to a certain extent in India, but not with beef, is as the Chinese become more affluent and they start eating more meat in a meal rather than just rice and vegetables, it takes multiple times, again, five, four, five, six, seven times, as, mount, as much grain to raise that pound of beef as it did to raise the vegetables or the grains they were previously eating. So all of a sudden you have a fourfold demand on grain resources that we did not have before. So moving to hamburgers costs a lot in terms of grain production. And, and actually, in the case of China, it's even moving to more pork and chicken before you get to hamburgers. Well, uh, when it gets to hamburgers, it's even worse. Yeah. yeah. And, of course, no hamburgers in India. <laughs> or you. Um, the reason why I mention those factors, climate change, increased consumption of protein in developing countries with large populations, and the third one is the utilization of QE2 or quantitative easement 2 by the Fed or the printing of $600 billion worth of, of money that has no financial backing whatsoever. Uh, these things all combine together to create an inflationary situation vis-a-vis -vis the U.S. dollar. So the value of the dollar will begin to continue, well, it'll continue to drop, but probably even faster than it's been dropping. And since international commodities are still priced in dollars, that means the price of those commodities will go up. So you've got threefold or three factors now. They're all going to be pushing towards an inflationary result. Now, what's interesting is that the, the U.S. government, which normally does not like uh, to admit uh, seeks inflation from time to time. Ben Bernanke, the chairman of the Fed, has articulated that he actually is seeking to create inflation. It's not just an accident. He, he believes that we need to create inflation to counteract against the risk of deflation. Now, there's an enormous number of consequences for you, the average person, when the government decides it wants to create inflation. So I'm not sure if where you want to start today, Howard, but well, that let me first kind of an overview. Okay, let me first go back. We have a, not, a lot of people who dialed in after our original introduction. So let me first repeat our general instructions that if you'd like to play, place a question, when you dial into us at the number 347-989-8946, the correct method to indicate you have a question is to hit the number one. And we do have a couple of quick questions, um, which I'll mention. And the first one uh, came into us by email, which is, when does QE2 actually start, the quantitative easing process of buying uh, those treasuries start? Uh, and maybe also, can you explain a little bit of what that actually is in the physical process, what is actually happening other than this term QE2, which most people associate with an ocean liner. Okay, so what it is, taking the latter part, <clears throat> what's happening is the government's decided to buy its own treasuries, its own bonds. And since the only way the Treasury, the way the only way the Fed can buy its own, the U.S. government's debt, is by printing more paper money. So what happens is that although there's no asset, there's no uh, Fort Knox full of gold, there's no, there's no real asset that gives them the ability to do this, the unfortunate uh, reality is that the government can print as much money as it wants. Now, there's reasons not to, by the way. Uh, many of you are aware uh, from school, if nothing else, of what happened after World War II for a thing called the Weimar Republic, where basically – World War 
after World War I, excuse me, of the Weimar Republic, which led to World War II. And the reason was that as the Weimar Republic kept printing more and more money, the value of a mark kept dropping to the point where you needed a wheelbarrow full to get a loaf of bread. That extreme uh, inflationary cycle is what causes political instability. And in the case of the uh, Germans, that led to the rise of Adolf Hitler. So you really don't want to have what's called runaway inflation. And when you print money with no backing, one of the possible outcomes is runaway inflation. Now, I don't think we're going to see that kind of drop at this stage in the U.S. dollar strictly because of the declining economic situation, which is coming. The issue really is whether or not the declining U.S. economy compounded by a declining U.S. dollar will trigger another international monetary heart attack like we had in in 08, and if so, would that be then creating a precipitous decline in U.S. and ultimately global economic activity? That's really the issue. So okay. focusing on the change Wait, of before the you go on, Ronaldo, another question came in, by, again, another email question, which relates to that, and maybe you can give us some insight here and how this is affects QE2. And it refers to a recent article by Paul Krugman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist, who mentioned that since 2008 – Total government spending, when you factor in the cities, the states, and the counties, is actually in a net deficit for stimulus since 2008. And that, in fact, there's been less government money circulating than normal at this point. And will, the question becomes, will QE2, this quantitative easing and this pumping of more money, will that actually get us into a net positive for economic stimulus? Yeah, uh, well, and let me give people a yardstick to watch that they should have been watching for the last year, and if they haven't, please start watching it now. And that yardstick is state government employees. State governments have been firing people left and right. That's been adding dramatically to the unemployment picture. So even though we've had 10 straight months of private sector job growth, the reason the unemployment rate stays so high is we keep laying people off in the public sector meaning states and, to a lesser extent, the federal government. So, But really the states are what's doing it. Now, that depressive effect, meaning taking people out of the workforce who used to work for the state and don't anymore, that depressive effect on, on uh, employment will accelerate now over the next, gosh, I'm going to say over the next, uh, certainly over the next two years, because the state governorships, that have changed hand, also in this election wave, and the number of state legislatures that have changed hand in this election wave means that more and more Republican governors are sharpening their knives in the belief that if they cut their state's uh, enrollment and their employment, that somehow magically it won't affect their state's ability to gain economic traction as a country. In other words, the theory is if I cut people off the payroll in the state of Colorado, that somehow... The economy will keep rising nationally, and Colorado will do just fine. In fact, it won't. Right now, jobs, jobs, jobs is the issue, and it has been. We've been talking about it for at least a year. So the way to get the jobs up, in one way to get jobs up is to stop firing so many people in the public sector and let the private sector continue to build, which it would at that point. And just to let people know, on that front, not only is there 10 consecutive jobless months, but there's two statistics that came out just yesterday that I thought was really fascinating. So first-time applications for unemployment benefits fell 24,000 just last week, from the previous week, to a seasonally adjusted 435,000. 
That's a very significant drop. And the four-week average, which is a less volatile gauge, of the number of people filing for the first time for unemployment dropped by 10,000 people. So that's all good, positive information. Now, what does QE2 do in the face of unemployment rising because states keep firing people and the private sector job growth is not strong enough to make up for all the people losing their jobs in the public sector? And the answer is I don't think it's going to help at all. In fact, I think it's going to be destabilizing. And the reason is there's plenty of cash around. Uh, last time I looked, there was $1.6 trillion sitting just in corporate treasuries, meaning companies sitting on that amount of money. The banks have got so much money, they don't know what to do with it. I mean, CBS has got so much money, it just launched a huge stock buyback for a billion and a half dollars. So all this money is already there. What QE2 is going to do, I think, is it's going to send American money, flight capital, literally, into other countries. And believe me, the rest of the world is very concerned about it. Um, Wolfgang uh, uh, Schauble, the I think he's the German finance minister, uh, was saying that it doesn't add up when the Americans accuse the Chinese of currency manipulation and then, with the help of their central bank's printing presses, artificially lower the value of the dollar unilaterally. So you've got countries like Brazil who are concerned that their rising uh, currency, the real, is going to be adversely affected because they won't be able to export as much. And in fact, there was a slight uptick this month in the improvement of U.S. exports to imports. So it will the dollar falling will make foreign goods more expensive, it will make um, U.S. goods more attractive overseas. But the, the dollar falling doesn't help if, in fact, inflation kicks in. I think QE2 is going to create more inflation than not. And with inflation will come rising prices. I think the dollar, as against other relative currencies, the euro, the real, et cetera, I think the dollar will continue to do poorly and worse over time. And QE2 will create a huge pile of new money, $600 billion, that I think will be used, frankly, in other countries. I don't think that there's attractive enough investment opportunities in this country, given what business believes is the likely outcome of two years of stagnation by a House controlled by the Congress, the Republicans, uh, and the White House controlled by the Democrats. So I'm looking at a very negative situation from my point of view. I do believe that it is highly likely there will be much worse than a double dip in the next two years. I think there will be a honeymoon for three, six, nine months. If people have equities right now, I would say stop buying them, go to the sidelines, don't get caught up in the false euphoria, which is about the $600 billion. The theory, by the way, Howard, as you know, is with $600 billion coming in, that will give corporations more money, and with more money the stock market will rise. And that's why the market's been rising together with the Republican grab of the House for the last few days. I'm, I'm not a believer in that theory. I think that will prove to be false. It's not fundamentally sound to begin with. And so what you're going to see is that $600 billion will create an inflationary impact. It, we, the gridlock in Congress will mean zero fiscal stimulus will happen, which is what the country desperately needs, because when you have monetary increases without fiscal stimulus, that means you've got one, one tine of a scissors instead of two, and one blade of a scissors can't cut paper. So what you're going to see is we're not going to be able to cut the economy where we need to, and we're not going to be able to grow the economy where we need to. So I think the $600 billion is a net negative. Okay, we have two other questions that relate to different parts of that um, comment you just made, and I'll ask them separately. I'll ask the first one first, and then have you answer, and then I'll ask the second one. And the first one relates to the dollar versus the euro, and the question, which I'm paraphrasing, um, Wall Street tends to move in advance of the actual events, and it sort of positions itself. And it seems to be that even though there's this great fear of the dollar softening because of uh, QE2, in fact, 
the euro uh, is is down again today, and I think it's trading around 137, 138 as we started the show, um, which is still significantly down from its high of 160 before the 2008 crash, and it still has yet to seemingly break through the dollar forty, dollar forty five uh, mark. Um, so this seems to be counter in actual practice what everybody's talking about. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, first of all, I think <clears throat> we, we we had this uh, two shows ago. We talked about this. What the euro is struggling with is that there is an inherent defect in the monetary union of the European Union, not the political union. So in the monetary union, and not all countries of the economic the European economic community, not all of those countries are part of the monetary union, which is means euro-denominated. So, for example, Britain, or the UK, is part of the European Union, but it is not part of the European common currency, euro. <clears throat> so in the flaw in the euro is that when you have a, a country, Greece as an example, which is incapable of fiscal discipline, but it uses euros, the rest of the European market needs to support that country, Greece, so that it doesn't default, creating downward pressure on the euro and a lack of confidence in the euro. Because at the end of the day, any paper currency, which includes the euro, is only sustained by confidence in it that people have. <clears throat> so let's go to Europe. With The flaw in the system is that you can't force the Greeks to stop cheating on their taxes, as an example. Where cheating on your taxes in Greece is, is like it's so popular, it's not even considered bad form. You, you can't force the Greeks to hire less than 50% of the entire population to work directly or indirectly for the government. So Greece is a runaway situation where the political will to change is not there, and therefore it leaves the rest of Europe holding the bag. I predicted two shows ago, and I think it's going to happen, that the European Union will have to come to grips with this problem. What do they do with a country that's trading in euros and refuses to clean up their act? Because if there's no downside, if the, if the Greeks think every time they, they have another problem, which they're going to have another problem when they have to refinance the debt they just pulled together, and if they don't improve their economy and they go to refinance that debt and the Germans figure they've got to bail them out again because the Germans have so much invested in Greece and so much invested in the euro, and the Greeks are going to say, well, the Germans will have to bail us out. That's their problem, and they'll continue to ride free. The Germans, on the other hand, and the rest of Europe are very, very upset with the Greeks because they feel like they're carrying their wayward cousins and helping them to you know, live a, a, a profligate existence because the European Union keeps picking up Greece. Well, that's got to get it. What I, might, what I might add, Bernal, is that for decades, German bankers have made huge profits selling Greek debt. And the Greeks often comment and say, wait a second, you're just as guilty as we are. I mean, we've put the debt into our budgets, but you're the one selling it around the world. Um, well, that's, so yes, you that's have to be responsible like as well. That's sort of like saying that the, um, the Greeks are the heroin addict and the Germans have been their heroin junkie, their their dealer, right? Right. Who's more guilty? Yeah, and, and, and the answer is one of them, the dealer, the guy who's been selling the heroin, the Germans realize now finally that it's not in their interest to keep selling the heroin, and the Greeks are going, but you got no choice because I'm already hooked and so are you. And what I'm suggesting is going to happen, and I suggest this two shows ago and I'm reiterating it, the Europeans will find a solution, a political solution, to what you can do to a country that refuses to play ball. And my, my hope is that it will do something like offer a two-year exit strategy so that if a country continues to be in a problem, 
and the European Union decides that it's no longer able to be part of the currency union, that they would create the situation where that country could be warned for a year, get yourself back in line to these ratios, or by the end of that year we'll start a one-year transition of you out of the euros and back into drachma. Now, that's a very, very uh, severe outcome. The, the European, it flies in the face of what Europeans would like to think as unity of, of the European continent. But I don't think there's any choice if they're going to defend their currency because they can't, they can't not take action because once it becomes clear that Germany has to support Greece, then what's the incentive for Portugal, who's doing a good job of trying to clean up their financial act? What's the incentive for someone like Ireland, who actually is cleaning up their financial act? So it seems to me that, the, that these things have to be addressed. When they are addressed, the, the euro will begin to fly against the dollar. Uh, so watch let me, for that let me, change. Let me bring that back to the, the original question, though. If the euro is still struggling with its own individual issues and problems, as you just um, outlined, and the dollar has its issues, they're still in a, rel in a relationship with each other, which that relationship hasn't really budged from the 130 to 140 range over many months, even knowing that QE2 is coming. Um, so yeah, but the reason it, somebody it, it, might QE say, well, well, where's the problem? Well, no, they, they know QE2 is coming, and they also know the Greeks haven't changed their ways. Mm -hmm. so, so what they're saying is Europe's got an endemic, systemic problem in that it's, the monetary union has a flaw when they conceptualized it, when once you get into the euro, there's no there's no mechanism to take a country out of the euro. That's the flaw. Mm -hmm. so there has to be that mechanism. Once that mechanism is agreed to and adopted, and I believe it will be within the next two years for a simple reason, I don't think the Germans and the French and the Italians and the British, well, the British don't care as much, but the Germans, the French, and the Italians, they don't want to go through this again in less than two years when the Greek debt comes up for renewal. They want a solution between now and two years from now. The U.S. situation it's going to deteriorate for the next two years because of QE2, because of the what I'm predicting will be the increase in inflation. So the dollar will continue to drift lower as against other currencies, and the, and the euro, in order to gain stature against the dollar, which it doesn't particularly want, by the way, but in order for that to happen, it's got to cure the Greek problem. Now, the, Greek, the, 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 the euro, I mean, the Europeans do not want the euro stronger, you have to understand. That's not in their interest. They're, they're, they would, they do, and they would prefer to keep the parity of the euro and the dollar exactly where it is. Same is true with the Japanese. Did you see all that, that government intervention in the national, international currency markets like three weeks ago with Japan? Right. Where they were just right. flogging they, away. They, they were buying like crazy because the, the yen kept rising. So no country wants their currency to appreciate, meaning get stronger, against its trading neighbors. Because when you have a trading neighbor, you want your goods to be cheaper to them, and you want it to be more expensive for them to sell their stuff to you so that your domestic consumption of imports goes down and your exports go up. That's the formula, the holy grail everybody's after. The problem is when you have stimulative effects like the QE2, that money's got to go somewhere. And that's why people around the world, I mean, virtually every one of the G20, with the exception of India, uh, thinks it's a terrible thing that the Americans have done because it's going to put all this pressure on developing currencies. Now, uh, Prime Minister Singh of India actually is, issued a statement while Obama was there that he was hopeful that QE2 would actually give some injection of additional capital to the U.S. economy because a strong U.S. economy is good for international commerce. Well, that's true. The question we're asking, though, is, is QE2 good for us? Will that help to create a strong U.S. economy, or will it, in fact, be neutral or even as I would say, probably hurt. So okay. for let me, me, let me, 
I'm sorry, finish, please, Ronaldo. No, for, for me, QE2 is a mistake, and I understand why they're doing it, because they're out of bullets, they have nothing, nothing left, the admission of everything else has failed, but to me, that's not going to be helpful. Okay, let me just remind our view, listeners, since we have a few more people that have signed on, that if you do want to place a question, to dial into us at 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key on your pad, and then we'll know that uh, you're about to ask a question. So let me ask that second question, which is a much more domestic one. And it goes to the notion that following the election or right before the election, and uh, people were predicting the results, which would essentially be summed up in one term for Congress, which is gridlock. And everyone is saying, oh, gridlock, you know, nothing's going to happen, nothing's going to happen. However, the question relates to things like the defense budget. These budgets always have to be passed. Funding has to go um, to all these different areas. Um, Congress must do something. And so that, meanwhile, while everyone is predicting gridlock, it actually seems like the opposite might happen, that in fact, because you have two opposing sides, and the question is, again, asking your thoughts on this, because you have two opposing sides who still need to pass certain basic budgets, there actually may be even more backroom wheeling and dealing trying to come up with various compromises on the budget. Um, what do you think of this, that concept? Well, I think... True I think, gridlock, or do you think there will be this deal-making going on? And concessions I think, on both I, I think the, the odds are extremely high it will be true gridlock. Uh, and <clears throat> the, the, the one bright light in the horizon, actually, is the fact that the Republican Party is not uniform anymore. Some of the Tea Party candidates who were elected, um, uh, particularly people like Rand Paul, um, uh, whose father, Ron Paul, has been a proponent of reigning in the military budget, which up until now has been the ultimate sacred cow. Um, the, 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 the idea of, look, more than 52% of the entire U.S. discretionary budget is military. And that amount of spending exceeds every other country in the world's military combined significantly exceeds it. So who are we arming to fight if we already have more arms than the rest of the world combined and we keep raising our military budgets, which they've gone up under Obama? So the military budget, <clears throat> the one place where people can go <clears throat> to remove $100 billion without even feeling the pain, have the same level of security or more, and invest that $100 billion in the domestic economy, and at that point you won't need to cut Social Security, you won't need to raise the age, raise the age of retirement, you won't have to worry about the rest of the entitlement programs because there's so much there and so much of it by redeploying it to the civilian sector using the multiplier effect. Uh, you know, you take $100 billion out of the military, you're going to create five to $700 billion worth of domestic economic activity. Well, I'm quick to point out that $500 billion was the entire stimulus, which clearly worked. I don't think there's any sound economist that thinks the stimulus didn't work. That was only $500 billion. And what I'm talking about is you can remove $100 billion a year for the military budget. So this year, instead of it being... $720 billion plus the dark budget, another $150 billion most likely. Instead of being $720 billion, it could be $620 billion. You'd have the same degree of security. Your military would probably be even better off than it with the amount of profligate spending going right now. And you know that they have tens of billions of dollars in parts that will never be used, bought every year. Why? Because some American company sells them, and they make those parts in one or more congressional districts. So you're talking about a system at 700 plus billion a year, which is extremely bloated and out of control. It's the most bloated federal bureaucracy we have, the military uh, contracting bureaucracy. So you take 100 billion out of that, you move it into the domestic economy, and then I'll, and I'll give you the exact place you ought to put it. You ought to put it in the green sector, 
because the number one risk to American military security, according to the Pentagon, is our dependence on foreign oil. So you take $100 billion out of the military, you stick it in domestic spending, so you create green sector jobs here, you'll create 500 to $700 billion of economic activities. That's much bigger than the stimulus per year, per year, 500 to 700 billion. And every single dollar will be spent reducing the demand for foreign oil, which thereby reduces the amount of American money being shipped overseas in the form of money to third world to third countries. Okay, so you dramatically improve the entire economy overnight with the wave of a, of a pen. Will it happen? Not likely. I don't think so. Now, possibly because the Tea Party can see that this is bloated, and as I said, people like Rand Paul, his father is one of the architects with Barney Frank of this suggestion, cutting the military budget to some reasonable number. Now, uh, maybe that'll happen. Maybe that's something that could happen. I'd like to believe it can. But my suspicion is that when you've got people like Mitch McConnell saying again last week, his number one objective is not to cure the economy, it's not to add jobs, his number one objective is to see that the president doesn't get reelected in 2012, that's a hell of a statement. That means he will do anything in his power to keep the economy weak. But, uh, John Boehner has said the same thing, basically. So when you've got the two guys running Congress whose number one objective is not to grow the economy, their objective is not to create jobs, their objective is to stop the president in 2012, what's going to happen is they're going to create the gridlock, I believe, it will cause the economy to do worse in the next two years, not better, because they perceive if it does worse in the next two years, the president will get blamed, and then the Republicans will take over the Senate and the, and, and the White House. What they don't understand, this is the part that I want every listener to now sit up and listen to this, this is really important, what they don't understand is they're not smart enough to pull that off. In other words, they're not smart enough to pull off a slight depression of the economy, so it's just a little bit worse than it is now. So unemployment is hovering at 10% when the election happens in 2012. What they're going to do with this gridlock is drive that unemployment rate to 15% or more. And believe me, when it starts going up above 10%, people will stop blaming just Obama and start looking all around the map at who did this to them. And I'm extremely concerned that when that starts to happen, the pressure that puts on the U.S. dollar internationally could be so severe it could cause a major international monetary crisis, not unlike what happened in 2008. Is that certain? No. Not at all. In fact, there, a strong case was made to me uh, just this week. I interviewed uh, three prominent figures in the world of international monetary theory. Uh, uh, Bob Reich, the former Secretary of uh, Labor under Clinton. Uh, Hazel Henderson, who's one of the leaders of our Econ Forecast panel. And some key players in the, in the private equities and equities markets. And what I did with those interviews, I tried to find out was there a consensus for how we could avoid a crisis from this gridlock? And what I heard from all three was different reasons why a crisis could be avoided and cautioning me that it wasn't certain yet that that crisis would evolve. However, each of them did agree with all of my key assumptions for why the crisis was likely. So from where I stand, and I want to share this, maybe this is a good way to segue into our lightning round, Howard, what I started doing, as you know, the day after the election, I stopped buying U.S. equities, I put my money into commodity um, commodity funds, basically food commodity funds. We can talk about that. Uh, I'm beginning to look at buying some more gold, and I bought some more Brazilian real denominated uh, development bank bonds. Right. right. Well, why don't we pause right there for a moment, and let me again repeat our instructions for anybody who wants to call and raise a question. Uh, and I have a slew of things that have also come in by email to ask you about. Um so again, dial in at 
989-8946 and hit the number one key. Um, and we are going to move into our uh, lightning round right now. And again, as a reminder to those of you who might be new to our call, this is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, such as bonds, the dollar, energy, and real estate, with particular emphasis on ideas that you yourself can use. Today, we are going to focus on gold, but before we do that, a couple of quick comments, Ronaldo. One, the, the U.S. government agency that seems to have been tasked most with going green is surprisingly, and I know this from dealing with the uh, local Navy base here in Ventura County, uh, is in fact the military. Absolutely. Are, That's what I was saying. They, they are leading the charge, in some cases, of converting their facilities to, to going green. So it's just kind of an interesting yeah. side note. And, and, and there's that. a great article in the New York Times just last week on why. <clears throat> but first of all, people who don't know this, you can get a copy online. The Department of Defense finally released its major report on the threats to American security, which have been they, they've been sitting on it now for two years. They finally released it about six weeks ago, in which they named the number one security risk to the United States is the dependence on foreign oil. Why do they say that? Well, first of all, because the Pentagon realizes it's going to be increasingly difficult to maintain the oil lifeline from the Middle East. For political and military reasons, we're not going to be able to do it. And the second thing they realize is that the U.S. military is currently constructed can't operate for a day without oil. Now, that's crazy because, I mean, we burn, our jets burn so much oil, our tanks burn so much oil, our personnel carriers burn so much oil, even our diesel generators in the field. So what the military is saying is we've got to find the solution to get off of that. So if you move $100 billion from the Pentagon budget into domestic spending on green sector, that will have a huge effect. And by the way, that could happen without Republican cooperation. The military could start putting tons of money in if they could get the Congress to agree with reallocating its budgets, meaning letting the military spend money where it wants to. Secretary Gates, a Bush holdover, military Secretary Gates, actually has now come out very strongly in a budget reduction and a reorientation of the budget towards green sector. They just installed, about a month or two ago, the first photovoltaic array in a forward division for the Marines over in Iraq. Why? Because that array costs, depending on the size, between fifty dollars to $70,000, and then you don't need a drop of fuel. A diesel generator in the same situation can be purchased for as little as $10,000. The trouble is it costs about $400 a gallon to get the diesel to the generator. So very rapidly, if you're running the diesel 24-7, which they do in these forward communication sites, the, the cost of getting the fuel there, militarily as well as financially, far exceeds the cost of just buying photovoltaics in the first place. Not to so, mention the risk of troops and tankers, trucks, being blown up on the way, which was happening in Pakistan six, eight weeks ago. Still um, happening. It's like, right. it, 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 they, right. they actually have a number. I forget what it is now. But like for every 70 fuel trucks that leave Karachi for forward positions, something like one or two get blown up. Right. And, and there's people on board those trucks. So somebody died there as well as a truck got blown up. Right. And, and so you're talking comment. about a huge risk. Right. Quick comment on oil. Um, I know for since we're doing these calls, I've been noting that um, the price of oil tends to be suppressed in the run-up to elections and then tends to rise after. Um, you know, for most of this year, oil has been hovering around $70 a barrel. And I think, as you pointed out to me last week, Ronaldo, uh, the Saudis made an announcement the day after the election that they thought the appropriate price for oil was around 90 a barrel. And we have almost instantaneously post-election run up to about $87, $88 a barrel. 
Uh, and again, it sort of reconfirms that theory that the oil industry, particularly this year in the wake of the spill in the Gulf, never wants oil to be an election year issue, and that every two years in the congressional presidential election cycles, oil prices are suppressed and then seem to rise afterwards. Any any comments on that before we move on to uh, gold? Well, no, and I think, I mean, there's nothing to say because you've already said it, Howard. I mean, it's, it's a statistical fact that that is what happens. In other words, what happens is every two years you'll see depressing of the price of oil because basically oil is a shared oligopoly. I mean, there aren't that many people who set the price. And um, the impact on political elections is the oil folks don't want to have you focusing on oil when you're voting because then you might vote against their interest. And don't forget that oil is the most heavily financially subsidized commodity by far in the U.S. economy, by far. If, if, the, if all subsidies to all forms of energy were eliminated tomorrow morning, there's no question that photovoltaics, wind, geothermal would sweep immediately over the country. So it's, it's that we continue to subsidize oil, which not with these egregious profits, and, and, and who pay no taxes in many cases, by the way. <clears throat> in fact, Exxon last year, I think, made $19 billion, I, at one point I noticed, and, and paid zero tax and got a refund, actually. So it, it's, it's like people have to realize how egregious this is. But back to the point about the actual um, military spending for the green sector that you raised, no question they're going to continue to lead it because – as we are forced to pull back from the Middle East, which we will be, we must come up with other ways to run our military. I believe by 2020, every jet in the U.S. arsenal will be designed to run on uh, uh, some percentage of biofuel, up to 50-50% biofuels within 2020. That's only 10 years from now. That's amazing. So the conversion is already going on. It's a very short time in terms of uh, development of that type of technology, too. For military that size. Right. Uh, you know, they've already there, there's one jet fighter that's already flying on basically algae oil. So you're going to see technologies like algae. You're going to see smart uses and not dumb things like. Um, in fact, I think the subsidies to corn ethanol are in jeopardy. In in the and I think that's a good thing. I'm sad to see that things that do make sense in the green sector probably won't be uh, promoted. But those are hopeful the ones that the the military will invest in. Anyway, so on to the lightning round. Um, yeah, let's, I know let's, we're going to do gold talk, last, let's, right? Let's, well, let's let's talk. I mean, I think we've touched on a lot of these other issues. Let's talk gold. Well, you want because that's not a short conversation. That's a longer one. That's the one we're going to feature today, right? Let me, that let me is our feature, there. yes. Let, let me start with the commodities. Okay. okay. So I just want to tell people why am I now not investing in equities in the U.S. market, but I am investing in commodities. And by the way, the <clears throat> the, 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 the the commodities trading. The regulatory apparatus for commodity trading in the United States appears to be in better shape now than it's been for a long, long time. It's growing dramatically, and one of the reasons is they're going to try to exercise jurisdiction over derivatives, which if that happens, it'll be one of the best things that happened since basically the dawn of time. But as part of that up-leveling of the legal capability of the CTC, what we're the commodity trading organization, what's going to happen now is you're going to see an increase in attention paid to the legitimacy of commodity markets. Now, I don't believe in all commodities necessarily because I think certain kinds of metals are more vulnerable to economic activity than others. So there's a common belief that um, a year before the economy starts to increase, copper prices will increase because copper is so important in building. 
Well, I don't see a building boom coming. There's one going on in China. I don't see one happening in the U.S. So I'm now selecting commodities as a basket. And the ones that I like are food-based commodities. Reason? Climate change will continue to depress the ability to grow food in many parts of the world. So that increases the value of of a farmer's commodity who can grow the corn, the soybeans, or the wheat, or the barley. Secondly, inflation since commodities are priced in dollars, and I believe that dollars will tend to inflate, that means uh, that the, the, the value of a dollar goes down, therefore it takes more dollars to buy a bushel of corn, therefore the value of the corn becomes a somewhat of an inflation hedge. And third and lastly is what we were talking about earlier, which is the increasing demand for food commodities by a global, growing global population, and a population that in many large segments of the planet, i.e. India, China, etc., are increasing their protein consumption. So I like commodities, that's what I was getting into, as well as I still like Brazilian industrial development bonds, although I think for people who have listened to this program for a long time, you know my belief that when the real hits 60, that's when you stop buying them. Uh, I think the last buy I got in was at 59, so I may not be buying those again because the Brazilian government does not want the real at 60. In fact, they'd be happier if it was down around 55 or 52, but it's it's close to 60 now, they can live with that. What they can't live with in their minds is having it go to 70. This show will cover what the Brazilians are going to do about that in an upcoming show because I'm hopeful the Brazilians will do the smart thing, which is basically currency influx regulation rather than currency manipulation. We'll talk about that later. Okay, so that's that's commodities. That's where I'm going. There isn't a single U.S. equity I would be willing to buy today, and I'm preparing to get out of all U.S. equities as I watch the market day by day and I watch the economic conditions month by month. So stay well, tuned to the mention, program, because I will be issuing the bulletin as to when it's time to sell your equities if you still have them. Right. Let me just mention that one of the means that uh, our listeners can participate in the commodities market is through exchange-traded funds, often known as ETFs. Um, I have to make a quick disclaimer that first, as a wealth advisor and broker, um, you need to know that I do hold some of these in, in my clients' accounts, and then also, one of the things we always remind people is that past performance is no guarantee of future results. Um, so it's definitely a case of buyer beware. Um, some typical commodity um, funds are things called like the, the DBO, that's the trade symbol, that's the one for oil. Uh, the DBA is a uh, exchange-traded fund for agricultural products. And the DBC is one for commodity products. That includes 50% of the commodity products are energy-related. Um, and those are some venues that you can use if you're interested, but I recommend before you make any purchase, make sure it's appropriate for your specific uh, financial needs and concerns and that you do a great deal of research on each of these before making any kinds of purchases. Yeah, and let's just also wrap up so people know there's a commodities trading exchange where you can actually buy contracts for pork bellies, sorghum, wheat, cotton, you name it. Any commodity. And I would mention, the too, that those are those markets are extremely volatile yeah, and are not something for the amateur to even begin to go into. Yeah. Most financial advisors do not deal directly with commodities, despite their, their experience and knowledge. It's a very, very risky area, unless you know exactly what you're doing. Right. And so, so the reason I'm mentioning is if you, you'll hear people talk about commodities trading. That's what they're referring to. If you are sophisticated, you can do it. In fact, with computers, it's relatively easy to do. Um, the common mistakes people make when they do that is they, they they fail to put in stop loss positions. They tend to use too much leverage. 
There's a lot of things you can do wrong with commodities trading. But if you wanted to basically park money and you didn't want to have to buy the stock of a company that owns a commodity. See, an ETF is always a stock. So an ETF is a fund of stocks. So if you believe stocks are going to go down generally, then you don't want to be in stocks. ETFs lose some of their attractiveness. In normal times, they're very, very attractive because it's a way to indirectly own an asset that's relatively modest and in mild risk. The question becomes, if in fact all stocks go down because there's a crash like there was in 08 or worse, then um, is an ETF for commodities as desirable as actually trading the commodity itself? Again, right. how I, should, uh, I do want to add, a, the, the, for example, in 2008, um, when the stock market crashed, one of the other interesting phenomenons which people need to be aware of is that most people who owned mutual funds uh, and exchange-traded funds, closed-end bond funds, which are generally retail products, meaning for the average consumer, not the institutions, most of those people panicked across the board, and they sold, in many cases, everything. People were liquidating all of their holdings out of pure fear. And what was ironic is that many of the things they sold were actually heading up in value like bonds. Um, but people just abandoned ship completely without true knowledge of what they were holding or why they were selling. They simply panicked. And so one needs to be aware that, for example, if there is another meltdown of any sort, that human behavior often overrides smart financial behavior, and that happens across the board, um, and one needs to protect oneself from that when yeah, and, making and, and, investments. And so just to, to wrap up on the commodities thing, so my advice to you is unless you're willing to get very educated and very disciplined, you really can't play commodities directly. You can still do ETFs, but at some point I'm going to tell you it's time to get out of those. Uh, if, if, in fact, this economic crisis continues to develop. Now, I, why I'm saying that is because Howard's correct. Often panic, well, always, panic behavior always leads to bad results, period. However, there's a difference between panic and retreat. And there are some times when you just need to know you've got to pick up your change and go home. And we can talk later in another show what home is. But the market could become such an unfriendly place to investment, that instead of seeing the blip we saw in 2008, which basically bottomed out by March of 2009, we could be looking at something which is far more dramatic. And if we are, then it's prudent to take our money off the table and say, okay, where do I put it? Do I put it in cash? Well, unfortunately, if the dollar is going to inflate, holding cash actually costs you money. So what you have to start doing is finding places to put it around the world. And that's going to be an increasing focus of this particular program, even though it's not something I like to encourage because it's very, very hard to do uh, and to do well. So we'll keep probing that. But for right now, commodities, agricultural commodities specifically, I like for the ETFs. Um, some people make a strong case that a mixed uh, ETF of commodities for not only agriculture but metals will also rise in the next three to six months. Entirely possible because there's a very strong a global economy that's pushing away right now. Let me just touch on that for a second. You've got China pushing away, growing dramatically. In fact, so much so that just yesterday they changed the reserve rates on their banks so that it would tend to dampen down economic activity because it was starting to run away with them. you got India. you got Singapore that's just going gangbusters. you got Southeast Asia going gangbusters. you got Northern Europe doing very, very, very well. you got Germany extremely strong. you got Brazil extremely strong. you got Chile that's strong. Um, Argentina, if it comes through the death of Kirshner, which I think it will, 
um, looks like it is poised to do some good things. So you got lots of Latin America, if not most of Latin America, in pretty good shape. You got lots of Southeast Asia, if not all of it. You got continuing stagnation in Japan. Forget that. You got strong economic growth in Northern Europe. You got stability in economic growth in Canada. And you got the United States dancing on the edge of a knife. So there's a lot of economic activity out there globally. We'll try and find ways to direct you to it as we work our way through what we hope doesn't become the crisis that we see that's possible. So that's that's sort of like uh, 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 if people want to know about uh, home mortgages, uh, good month last month, uh, up 5.8% in, in home mortgage applications. Uh, you've got um, residential real estate uh, has bottomed out in many markets, has not bottomed out in some. Part of the problem there is that the foreclosures are now based not on the, the, the round of people who speculated and got caught with two and three homes and no down payments. Uh, foreclosures now are a real fact of life for people who've lost their jobs and can't get employed again. So the, the real economy is now depressing the real estate market, and it's taking it into a second and third wave of foreclosures. Uh, I don't see a lot of um, optimism in, in, in the months ahead, although I was pleased that the speed of foreclosures will have to slow down because the banks literally weren't even reading the paper they were filing. Um, I think that there's a mess there yet to be fully understood, and it may be that the big banks, particularly B of A, has some real exposure. We'll see. Right. Um, you know, let me interrupt you for a second because we're actually only seven minutes remaining in our show. And so let me ask you, um, there's still a number of outstanding topics we haven't even touched on yet, which is, again, gold, which was our prime focus yep. today. Also, the lame duck Congress, what may or may not happen. Uh, also, the situation where California suddenly became a democratic island with the ability to pass a budget. Um, some major things there. Uh, would you like to extend the call a little bit today, or would you like to sort sure. of touch okay, on well, some of these things? Let's do gold for sure right now so it's over by uh, the normal time, and then we'll stick around for another 10, 15 minutes, and, and we'll handle some of those other issues, okay? Okay. Let's do so gold right now. Gold, gold. quickly. Okay, folks, um, gold's at around 1350, 1370, crossed over 1400. Uh, it is not at an all-time high. Inflation adjusted, it, it was a high. the high in gold was like literally 30 years ago. Uh, I've not been a big proponent. I've held it in my portfolio for a number of years now, starting in 2000, late 2007, early 2008. I've done very well with it. I was buying gold at $550 an ounce. It's now at 1350 say 1370 I believe the upside potential for gold is higher than the downside potential. So I'm looking at gold at least at a $1,400 level. A lot of people say the next stop point for gold is actually $1,750 an ounce, and some people say it's going to get to $2,000 an ounce or more, which would put it close to the all-time high in inflation-adjusted terms. Now, why do I think gold's going to go up, and then how can you own gold? I think gold's going to go up because of the inflationary pressures I see in the U.S. dollar and QE2, because I think the cost of things are going to go up as the, the value of the dollar goes down. Uh, I think that uh, there's the political instability of what happens in a time like this when clearly the United States is making some very bad economic decisions. And politically, I think those decisions are going to be reinforced with what we've called now this gridlock. So when you see these issues d developing, gold as a harbinger of safety, gold as a way to preserve your economic value in, in, in inflationary times, currency-wise, and gold as a, as a way to... Um, Try to convert your wealth into something tangible that you think will have economic value long after any single currency is gone. All those reasons are beginning to push for gold to continue to rise. Uh, when you see people like Soros in investing heavily in gold now, Paulson investing in gold, and Paulson, as you recall, would be the one guy who would who bet both against and for 
uh, the economy in the last term with Solomon Brothers successfully. Um, so I'm, 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 um, I've seen gold going up. How do you own gold? Well, there's an ETF. So as Howard explained a moment ago, that's a basket of stocks that have a direct connection to gold. So they're either gold mining stocks typically or some other direct connection like that to gold ownership. I, I should add there are actually about six or seven different ETFs that uh, either hold gold directly or for gold mining um, or hold the companies that are doing the mining. It's, there are a variety. And again, I would state the same thing I said before, that if you're interested in gold, research those ETFs very carefully. Make sure that the volatility is something that you can handle in your own portfolio. Uh, and be aware that, uh, again, these are not the actual gold itself in most cases, but are tracking that price. So they may not be exact representatives of what's going on. Yeah, just to give people an example. Uh, and make your the decisions way wisely and carefully. The way a gold mining stock works is what you're really valuing is the underlying value of the asset still in the ground that, that gold mining company controls. So when I'm sitting on ton, metric tons of gold in the earth that I'm allowed to mine and extract, the value of my stock goes up if the value of the gold underneath my feet goes up because I will get more as I extract it and sell it every day. So that's why gold mining stocks rise when gold prices rise. Um, I, would, I would urge you, if you're going to do an ETF, I think those that are closer related to the ownership of gold metal itself are probably safer in the current environment rather than those which have extensive operations apart from owning the metal itself. So word of the wise on that, as Howard said, these can be very volatile, although they've been relatively steady for the last couple of years. And, of course, gold has a tendency when, when fear stops, when the threat of inflation stops, gold can drop precipitously. So the last thing you want to be doing is holding gold too long. Uh, I stopped buying gold uh, when it got to 1,000 because I wasn't sure if it would go up or down from there. It's now clear to me we've got new factors at play, which we're going to likely, I think, to cause it to go up. So I'm a buyer of gold at any place below 1475. I think I can make a strong case that it's not a bad thing to do as high as 1750, but I don't need to go there because we're nowhere near that number yet. And as many me, people no, one we just and many people believe that the actual next stop for gold is 2,000 an ounce. So that's the quick rush on gold. Right. Let me just make one comment about some of the things we've talked about in terms of buying these commodities. These are not entities that one should hold in your with your short-term funds. If you need funds for paying your mortgage, paying your bills, that's not the money you should be using to buy any of these items. These items should be purchased with monies that you can sit aside watch them go up or down as necessary in your long-term side of your asset allocation models. Uh, again, the market doesn't care what your personal financial situation is. It only cares about itself. And you need to be very careful when buying any of these items to make sure that, again, you are not jeopardizing your, your routine, regular cash flow and would not have to sell these in a panic to suddenly cover your own mortgage, your own health insurance, or your own bills. It's very important that you position these wisely. On, on that point, Howard, I often recommend to people, if you've got cash that you think you're going to need in the next three, six, nine months, even a year, and you want to put it somewhere, I really recommend going online, get an ING electric orange account, or an orange account if you don't have enough money to open the electric orange account, get the electric orange account and earn 1.25% interest on your money. You can't get that at a bank. It's available to you by daily transfer. It's extremely simple to use, and it's the best place to hold your cash when you're waiting to use it for something else safe, it's federally FDIC insured, up to 250000 per account. So you've got nothing to worry about with the, with, the, with the online ING account, 
And to me, that is the best way. And there are other competing services like Ing. I just like Ing because I like that Dutch bank. Um, you, you can get those really nice returns, and that's where you hold the money you need to really live with. Now, go back to gold for a second. So people hear all the time about uh, Monix selling gold coins and gold bars and stuff. And you can buy it that way. And In fact, there's been a huge, uh, huge a surge of people buying gold coins, either the Krugerrands, which is a troy ounce, or um, the Canadian Looney. Uh, it, 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 actually, it's the Canadian uh, Maple Leaf they refer to as a Looney. Uh, the, 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 these coins are potentially problematic, and gold bars are the same. Why? Because if you've got a coin that's worth, let's say, $1,400, one coin, how do you spend it? You take a pocket knife and shave a little bit of gold off when you want to buy a loaf of bread? It's very difficult to transact in a Krugerrand. So although you are owning the gold, and because it's so valuable, a small amount can be kept in a safety deposit box, and you'll have access to it. Owning gold is requires you to have storage, so that means you've got to pay for that safety deposit box. Not such a bad thing when gold's really, really worth a lot, but still something to think about. And number two transacting in it, if everything goes wrong, is not that easy because how do you get change for a Krugerrand? And the answer is there isn't such a thing right now. So my feeling is that owning the gold itself, the specie, uh, the actual gold metal, is not as preferable today as owning the EDF. However, if my concerns about the stock market continue to rise, then at some point I'll tell you, okay, now you want to start getting closer to gold metal, actually owning it. Well, there's actually a problem with that, and that is uh, the assay fees. In other words, the, when you hold physical gold in some capacity and you want to exchange it at a gold exchange, I don't mean one of these places on cable TV, um, that gold has to be reevaluated, and that costs a significant fee. And the reason for that is when gold was originally used in coins, a typical trick, and this goes back 150, 200 years and more, people would shave small amounts off those coins and collect fragments of gold and then sell that as well. So the coins actually were less than they were measured to be. Um, so gold is a very soft metal. Um, it can be manipulated, and for that reason, it is very expensive to actually hold the physical gold in addition to the storage issues, um, but to actually exchange it on legitimate gold markets. So it does become very problematic for that. Yeah, and the reason you do it. Be aware of. Yeah, the reason you do it is because you believe that there's a chance for a catas catastrophic decline in economic values. And at that point, you go, okay, what's got any value left when the whole, everything else goes to heck in a handbasket? And the answer is gold. At least that's the theory. So whether it's an accurate theory or not is a different issue. But that's why people are buying gold, and that's why gold's going up in value, and why I think it will continue to go up in value for the foreseeable future. So uh, that's a quick quick primer on gold. If people have specific questions about other types of ways of, of owning gold, and there are a couple other ways to own it, as we've indicated, you could own a stock of a gold mining company, which has a lot of reserves in the ground. There's, uh, You can do a lot of different things to try and own or tie your wealth to gold, and if we get questions on it, we'll answer them in upcoming shows, but basically that's a quick overview on gold, and uh, right now gold is approximately 70% below its all-time high on inflation-adjusted terms. So don't think it's so ridiculously expensive by historical standards. Conversely, when it got to that high, it dropped precipitously over the following few years. And so if you were in the metal at that point, you were really getting hurt. So knowing when to buy gold, knowing when to sell it, very, very important. Okay. Okay, well, we did gold. The most time, timely of our remaining topics 
uh, and one that would be too late to get to next month, is the lame duck Congress. And will they take any action? Um, and if so, what kind of action? Any thoughts on that, Ronaldo? Well, I, I, my first thought is watching what they do will tell you a lot about what's going to happen in the next two years. If the Democrats decide that this is their last chance, last kick at the can, and decide to do something really significant, um, this is their chance to do it at the lame duck session. They actually have more Democratic senators because of the way the election worked. There's going to be two more Democrats and one more Republican because of the way the seats were empty. So they've got more control in the, House, in the Senate. I believe the original Bush tax cuts were passed by a reconciliation bill, which only requires 51 senatorial votes, which means if Harry Reid's got the gumption, he's tired of getting kicked around, he could put together a reconciliation bill, which would pass the House for sure, and then pass the Senate, and they could take some strident, they could take some very strong issues. I mean, ideally, I'd love to see them put through the, a bill for at least $50 billion for the states, stimulate state spending. I would love to see at least another three, $400 billion in stimulus for the economy generally. Uh, don't know that it's possible, but they've got the power to do it between now and January 2nd. Um, will they do it? I don't know. Uh, they haven't been very courageous the last two years. Why would they be courageous now? So if we see nothing, let me give you a good example. The Bush tax cuts are going to expire automatically on January 1. If they don't do something about that, well, the Republicans are saying they'd almost rather have them expire so that they have another thing to blame the Democrats for. The Democrats, however, have enough majorities in both houses they could pass the Bush tax cuts tomorrow morning. And they could do it and not give it to the benefit of the top 2%, which I think would be prudent. Will they? Don't think so. Don't, they haven't shown that kind of political courage to me. So um, what the election really was about was not so much about we love the Republicans. This election was about how much the people are disgusted with the Democrats and the fact that they didn't do what they, what they claimed they would do, which was to bring the process out into the open and have a vigorous debate on what's important and then take a stand and be willing to go up or down on that stand. That's what the Democrats didn't do. They did a lot of backroom deals, and because of it, people are very upset. And In, in fact, there's something like 95% of the American population doesn't know that they received a tax cut last year, which I find phenomenally hilarious. Uh, talk about not knowing your own self-interest. Okay, that said, the lame duck session, if it does take uh, strong moves, if it does do some things that are stimulative, by the way, they also have to, they have to address the alt-minimum tax between now and December 31st. We'll see if they do that. So if they do some strong moves in, in the lame duck session, it would give me courage and hope that in the Congress that convenes in January, we'll have a more vigorous debate on things that really matter. If they don't, if the Democrats roll over again like they have for the last two years, then you're not going to have a strong debate in the next two years, and that would heighten my concern that the, that the logjam will create serious economic dislocation. So watch, watch the lame duck session. Let's see what, what happens. Okay, Ronaldo, as I said, we are running over. Are there any last-minute comments you want to make uh, as we wrap up tonight's show or any other topics you do feel we must discuss today uh, that can't hold till next month? No, I just I think the most important thing I can say today, just to wrap up, is we do live in extremely interesting times. And I want so badly to be wrong about my concerns about the financial health of the United States and potentially the global economy. Uh, I'm looking for as much positive feedback and reinforcement as I can. I'm going to list three or four things that could keep us from having a financial crisis. Number one, and as I said, I've interviewed a number of people this last week just to, just to get a sense of what's possible. Number one, 
the residual strength of the underlying economy. Uh, the manufacturing production numbers are up. Um, the the uh, we're going to have a good Christmas. I'm almost sure of that. By the way, I mean good spending in the fourth quarter, retail spending. Um, residual impact of ten strong months of job growth in the private sector, and the likelihood that the eleventh month is right here with us now. Um, there's the psychological argument you make, Howard, which I think is a good one, that uh, the individual people in this economy are scrambling everywhere they can to try and make their businesses work better, to try and make make some hay, to try and you know climb out of the recession. Uh, if it's a fired professional, they can't get rehired. They're trying to figure out some way to do something entrepreneurial. All of that entrepreneurial energy could be tapped and also act as a way to help lift. So existing momentum of the economy, which has been getting better every month for the last 12 months, last actually last 18 months, that combined with the, the psychological lift that you talk about, Howard, of people wanting to do better and therefore collectively it does better. Third factor, um, Hazel's a big believer that the green tech spending is going to happen come hell or high water, no matter whose watch it is. It's certainly happening globally. She believes it's going to start happening more and more in the U.S. The Pentagon seems lined up with that, so what the Pentagon wants, it usually gets. Uh, that will add some residual strength to the economy. Um, there's another belief that they're, um, uh, out there that the because the global economy is so strong right now, and the U.S. is such a big part, 25% of the total global economy, when the other 75% is doing well, which it is right now, it's hard to see how that won't splash back and benefit the U.S. in addition. Finally, there are those people cynically who say, look, the dollar is going a little bit lower. We think the Fed can manage the QE2 thing well enough to keep the dollar disadvantaged against other currencies, in which case exports will go up, imports will come down, and we'll rebalance a little doing that. Those are the factors that potentially are positive. When I add them all up, I would still say that together they represent less than a 50% chance that we're going to avoid a serious economic decline, which I'm still predicting will happen six to nine months out. As we said, we do live in interesting times. Uh, first, I'd also like Stay to thank for the monthly update. <laughs> right. uh, I'd like to thank our, our viewers and listeners. We had actually record numbers today, and I wanted to thank you all and encourage you to send any questions you may have or topics you'd like to hear uh, to the Academy address, email address, and uh, and to tune in next month. Um, I think it's going to be a very interesting series of calls over the next few months as we see how all of these factors unfold. And we've yet to even talk about the impact on estates and estate planning, uh, which we have no clue what will happen until into next year. So just with that, Ronaldo, thank and, you and, very and, much. Howard, just let me end with one thought. I want people to really know my job as I see it, so we are clear which way this is going to go, is every month I'm going to spend more time than I've ever spent in my life trying to understand what these issues are and how I can best present them to you, the listeners, so that you at least will have more information and have a better chance of coming through this intact and maybe even prospering. So that's my goal. I'm committed to that, and we'll be doing this every month, and I'll put incredible focus on it. So know that we are concerned about how we can help you. That's our job at the World Business Academy. Okay. With that note, I thank you all for tuning in, and hopefully we'll be back again with you next month. Take care now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.